I don't know, it was crazy. We launched, I think, eight or 10 products in a year. And so from the time we, we launched our first product to the time that we, um, we basically went public, it was a year, which only happened at the dawn of the internet. It was an insane ride and not everything went as according to plan. In fact, a lot of things didn't go according to plan, but we powered through it anyway. And it taught, I learned a lot of lessons from that experience. Hey guys, my name is Sunny, and welcome to the very first episode of Lessons from Failures, where every month I have candid conversations with heads of product, growth marketers, CEOs, and CTOs to talk about their failures and what they've learned from them. Before I introduce today's guest, I have a special request from you. This podcast is brand new, so I would really, really appreciate your help in spreading the word. You can do this in a few ways. You can tell your friends, subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on, or leave a review. Today, I am joined by Scott Case. Scott is a technologist, inventor, and entrepreneur. He's well known as the founding CTO of Priceline.com. Today, he is the founder of Upside, the next generation platform for business travelers. It makes booking and managing travel a breeze. I interned at Upside back in 2018 as a product manager, and I learned a ton from Scott and the team he built. About two and a half years have passed since then, but as the whole world went into lockdown and travel grinded to a halt in 2020, Scott has had to make some tough decisions since then. Let's hear from Scott what he has done to adapt to the changing travel market. Obviously the pandemic has created all kinds of mayhem for everybody, yeah. but, yeah, but yeah. in a, in a travel, in a business travel context, it's, um, it has not been pretty. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure it's essentially zero. You know, in some respects, it would be easier if it was zero. It's actually it's not. not. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause if it was zero, you could, you know, you, you, we could further reduce costs and et cetera. And, you know, by, but you have to have a minimum, you basically have to have a minimum level of overall support to, and we, at the low point, we were down about 95%. I think we're hovering at about 80, 85% of what 2019, excuse me, 15% of what 2019 was. Okay. 15 to 20, depending on the day. And it's hard to read because of the seasonality effect. So mm -hmm. coming into the back end of last year, it was unknown, but you know, we had, I don't know, about 50% of our client base um, booked at least one trip in Q4. So they're not booking as much volume, but they're, yeah. but they have employees that have to go places. So um, it's, uh, that has made it, it's good overall, but it's also, it's like one more variable in all the variables you have to yeah. juggle as a leader. Like you still have to, you still have to service those people that are still. Yeah, service them. You want to retain them. You want to treat yeah. them well. I mean, you're just going to do all the job that you have as a business, but you don't have any the prospects for growth are limited because there aren't as many companies that are traveling. And if they are, they don't need a, right. If you, if you've only got one employee that's going to travel in the entire quarter, you don't need a travel solution. We have a strategy as business travel returns, and uh, and so we've continued to invest. I'd say the the majority of our resources continuing to build out our technology platform, and we have some new customer segments that we're going after, um, including 
um, providing our technology to other travel management companies uh, as a way for them to have a, uh, frankly, a, a better overall solution than what um, has been available on the market to them before. And in addition to that, we peeled off a small team when we experienced ourselves the need to take advantage of the Paycheck Protection Program. And so we, uh, we did a lot of research we, and we stood up what is now called Upside Financial, which is just upsidefinancial.com. And, uh, and it is a way for mostly it's small businesses uh, or individuals, individual entrepreneurs who took out PPP loans in the last round. And we're also working uh, to, to figure out the best way to support people who are looking for loans in the second round of um, that Congress just passed a few weeks ago. So uh, we're, we're still in the travel game, and, but we're really focused on uh, trying to provide as much support for small businesses who took out PPP loans to help them get their forgiveness worked out because the way the program worked, you got a loan, let's say $250,000. And if you used it properly, mostly for payroll, because it was about saving people's paychecks, then you're able to apply for forgiveness and have the loan forgiven. And that loan forgiveness process is complicated. And despite Congress's best efforts to continue to try to simplify it, they seem to uh, mostly complicate it. So uh, most business owners need some help of some kind, and that's what we provide. That's awesome. It's awesome that you're helping a lot of um, business owner and small business owners throughout America, you know, maximize their PPP forgiveness. But I want to take it back to early on into your career. Um, so you're most known as founding CTO of Priceline. Uh, what did you do before then? So I have a computer science engineering degree. So I have a software background. Uh, when I was in high school, I started a little consulting business, um, helping small businesses figure out at that time, the internet didn't exist, uh, but how to network their computers together for their offices. So I had like lots of lawyers as clients who at the time, you know, were basically using floppy disks, which you may not even know what they are, uh, but to connect computers together. So I did that during high school, had a few internships over the summer at various companies. And then when I got into college, I, um, I started to take on bigger projects and um, uh, I built all kinds of software databases for database and database applications uh, for diff solving different kinds of business problems. And, uh, and then my junior year, I joined uh, a startup and uh, was a software engineer on their team. Uh, ended up graduating from, from college. And uh, rather than taking the job that I was offered by like a real company, I took the job at the startup where it was unclear every two weeks, who, you know, were we going to get paid on time? And um, although our, the founders of the company never missed a beat, but it was always, you, know, you sort of never knew. And, what was uh, that startup? Say it again. What was the startup? It was called Precision Training Software, and it was a, a software for the general aviation community. And it was one of the places where I learned one of my first lessons. So the, the software was a flight simulator that ran on a personal computer, and we built a, a pretty simple rules-based artificial intelligence engine that would uh, act as a flight instructor. And uh, we married the two things together, and, and we, we could teach pilots how to fly IFR on, in the clouds. And uh, we spent two years after I graduated building this fantastic piece of software. 
And, uh, uh, and the lesson that we learned was that running a quarter of a page black and white ad in a magazine for general aviation pilots was not the way to get the most customers. Um, we thought we were really smart by having an 800 number, again, pre-internet. And um, I spent the next two years learning how to sell. I, I, I got every piece of collateral I could, books on tape, um, uh, read every book I could, learned from the best, and ended up figuring out how to sell over the phone. And, um, and we ended up building the business up. But the lesson was, it's not enough to have great product. You have to have a great you know, go-to-market strategy to go along with it. And we, we didn't really understand how to do that well. We're good at product, but not great at, at, um, at getting customers at scale. So uh, that was what led me to actually get introduced to Jay, who became the founder of Priceline, but he was starting something called Walker Digital. And he's a, he's a consummate marketer in the best possible word. He had, he had started several companies in that space and was running a, a large marketing company at the time. Uh, but he saw the digital age and particularly the internet coming and said, you know, there's going to be some brand new uh, business models that couldn't otherwise exist uh, on the, without the internet. And what would those be and how would you build businesses around them? And so I joined his very small team on this, what amounted at the time to kind of a side project for called Walker Digital. There were, I think I was the fourth employee. And it was through that process, we built a small team and then we, we cooked up what became uh, the underlying uh, concepts behind what ultimately became Priceline. Gotcha. And you majored in computer science. So what was it like doing sales as somebody who majored in computer science? It's just a very different gig. I, I, I have a fairly outgoing personality, so I, I'm... I, I enjoy talking to people and engaging, but you've got to learn to ask for the order. And, you know, if you just expect to give somebody a demo or explain what the product is and that they're just going to magically want to order it from you, you're wrong. You've got to, and, you know, you learn things like ask for the order three times throughout your conversation with people. Um, you learn that it's about building an authentic relationship with the person. So it's not just, uh, you know, telling them a story about your product, but it's, how is that? What do they care about? What, what's important to them? How do they want to, uh, what, what are they trying to accomplish? And how does your product or service help them accomplish that? Sometimes they don't know. They just, they suspect they have it. In our case, we weren't really solving a problem per se so much as we were helping people fulfill an aspiration that they had. And so, you had to understand how to get them into that headspace and then get them to part with their money. And we sold a $500 product. And even today, $500 is a lot of money. You know, most people don't buy $500 things that often, um, even now. So, uh, you know, it's a hard thing to get people to, uh, to part with their money, their, their hard earned money. And, um, and so it, I just learned a lot And those first calls were painful. You have to learn it's a numbers game. And so, you know, it's okay to make a hundred calls and only get, you know, five people and maybe only make one sale, but you get better at it. You figure out how to refine your list and you just, it's, it's a grind, but I will tell you for anybody out there, including you, Sonny, um, the number one thing you could do if you want to be a founder and you're in your twenties is, um, go spend six months selling something over the phone. 
not not email marketing or that can be that's part of it but the actual engagement with another human being and getting them to make a decision to buy whatever it is that you're selling it will serve you throughout the rest of your entrepreneurial journey because as founders we're always selling ideas to other people to get them to come along on the adventure with us and and i i say selling not in the used car salesman way, but in the people need to buy into a vision and believe that you're going to help take them there. And that is the fundamental basis for a great uh, selling relationship is creating a relationship and then having the other person believe uh, that you can deliver what it is that you have promised. And uh, in the entrepreneurial case, you have to be very authentic about the fact that, hey, we may not get there, but here's why you should come along for the trip. Gotcha. Gotcha. So then afterwards, uh, you went to start uh, Priceline with mm-hmm. Jay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, what was that journey like? So Walker Digital was, uh, our, our purpose was to come up with new business models. And the fundamental idea that launched Priceline was the idea that you could flip the e-commerce model on its head and give the pricing power to the buyer and let the sellers decide. And so the concept of name your own price was the marketing tag, but the, the basic idea was uh, you have something that you want. You could define the configuration of it, an airline ticket to LA and back, and um, and a price that you're willing to pay. And the, the trick to it was you were committed if a supplier could fulfill that for you. And you gave up certain rights, like, I don't know what airline I'm going to be on, or I don't know what hotel I'm going to stay at. So that was the underlying principle. And, and we launched the airline product, and then we launched a, a brand, a new car, name your own price for new cars. And we launched, I don't know, it was crazy. We launched, I think, eight or 10 products in a year. And so from the time we, we launched our first product to the time that we, um, we basically went public, it was a year which only happened at the dawn of the internet because you had these, you had this multiplying effect of both the enthusiasm for the internet and more and more people getting on the internet. And you had people, the early adopters were all there. And so they wanted to try new things and, and we had a novel concept and it was a, it was a rare intersection in, in kind of human history for startups like, like ours. And, uh, it was an insane ride and not everything went as according to plan. In fact, a lot of things didn't go according to plan, but we powered through it anyway. And it ta- I learned a lot of lessons from that experience. So you, you guys started Priceline in 96 and went public in 97? No, we actually started, uh, Walker Digital was 96. We made the decision to start Priceline in 97. It wasn't even called that. We launched the first product in 98 and then we went public in 99. Yeah, that's that's definitely that's definitely a wild ride. What would you say is like the biggest mistake that you had during that rocket ship experience? I um, I was a very young leader. I was probably I think when we launched, I was twenty eight, and I didn't really fully understand the difference between managing and leading, and so I, I don't know that. 
I don't know that at the age of 28, I could have been any better at it than I was, but in retro, if I had a time machine to go back and tell my, you know, my, my founding CTO self at 28, I would have said two things. One is, um, is relationships matter and building really authentic relationships is really critical. I understood it from a sales side, but I didn't really understand about surrounding myself professionally with deep relationships, both other employees, et cetera, but also outside the company. So again, go sell over the phone and start practicing building really authentic relationships that go together. And then I think the second one is that I, I, um, I didn't understand the difference between leadership and management. And I was a, I was a good enough manager, but I was a terrible leader. And um, uh, I, I developed over time much, much better leadership skills through, through the Priceline experience and, um, and have been practicing ever since. Uh, and I don't think you're ever done being a leader. You, you, it's a constant state of practice and it's unbelievably hard. Gotcha. And then how many people were you managing or I guess leading uh, at its peak? I think our engineering team was probably 200 um, across all the different teams. It might've been a little bit more, which was, that was just, it's a lot. And, and at the time, software development life cycles, we were all inventing this stuff. The concept of Scrum didn't exist. The way that you manage things, most of the tools didn't didn't exist for managing projects like that. And we were on the internet. So a lot of the baseline technology was constantly changing and evolving under our feet. So it was a, uh, it was a tricky time. We were, the good news is that everybody was in the same boat in terms of where the technology was. So we all had to invent and make it up as we went, but, but yeah, that's about the size of the team. Got it. And then can you talk a little bit more about what makes a good leader? Yeah, I think I think separating out management, which is about you know projects and tasks and planning and all those things, important. But anyone can learn those skills. Leadership is recognizing that the people that you work with really have a choice that they're making, and they need to be inspired to want to do the things that you're laying out as a plan, and that you have to be investing in who they are, their well-being, the things that they want to accomplish both as individuals and then um, help them build teams and be on teams, not just the big team for the company, but be on a team that's that they feel comfortable being effective with. And there's a bunch of other elements to it, but leadership is about connecting with human beings and getting them to be inspired to want to accomplish what you're laying out for them. And it takes, it's hard, it's communications, it's relationships, it's understanding their people too. They need to understand, you need to understand them well. Um, it's all of those pieces. We do have a question from the audience. So okay. uh, based on your experience learning on the go, what is the best way to adapt? Uh, there's a cycle that you need to be very aware of. And the more disciplined you can be about the cycle, the better. And it goes something like this. You have a strategy, let's call it strategy A or a plan, right? And you're getting new information all the time. You're executing, you're acting against that, but you're getting new feedback constantly throughout it. And every time you're evaluating the feedback that you get, the information, you've got to kind of, and we do it almost um, 
implicitly. We don't think about it, but we're kind of evaluating against the strategy. The trick is, is that if you get new information that says, uh-oh, that strategy isn't going to work anymore, right? That's not the right thing. Either all of it, a component of it, et cetera. You kind of have to stop, step back and say, all right, we had A. Here's the new information that has changed us to be saying now we have a new plan B. And the reason that, that that's so important is that when you're on your own, you kind of do it on the fly and you're by yourself, right? But if Sonny and I are starting a company and I get this new information and I think we can't be doing A anymore, we got to go to B, I can't just go to B. I've got to bring Sonny along for the trip. And I got to say, Sonny, we got this new information. A is not going to work anymore. We got to go to B. Or A is working really well and we got to go to B because it's got to go faster or whatever it is that's changed. So that pattern the more you practice that pattern, the more adaptable you are because we're all getting information all the time. And the question is, does it change our strategy or not? Or does it reinforce our strategy or not? And if it changes it, how do we make sure everybody understands why we went from A to B? And I think a lot of young leaders, myself included, and I'm still practicing this, kind of skip the step because we see it's so obvious to us, but we have to remember that there's lots of people around us that it's not going to be obvious, either because maybe they don't have the new information or they don't have the experience you have to interpret the information. All of those things change the way that that um, we make strategy decisions. And that's just a feedback loop. And the, the sooner you get into that loop, the better. So let's fast forward into your career where Upside, right? Upside is business travel. And today, business travel, uh, I think what you said was like down 85% from what it was like in 2019. What do you think was the hardest decision that you've had to make? Uh, the hardest? I don't know. We had a, hard, a bunch of hard decisions. I stand by a decision that I'm, um, I'm proud of, but it was, a, it was a difficult choice that we made. We made the decision to uh, that keeping the team together or at least creating the circumstances to keep the team together was a priority for us in the early days of the pandemic. Cause it was unclear how bad things were going to get, how, what was happening. And we wanted to create some stability and that required us to do a few things. We had to reduce our costs dramatically because without, if you don't have any customers that are buying, our business was an e-commerce model. So without, without people booking trips, there's no revenue coming in. And and so we had to cut a lot of expenses. We, we, we asked people to reduce their salaries, um, but the all around keeping the team together. And uh, the majority of people you know, decided to stay and, and we eventually were able to bring salaries almost all the way back for, for everybody um, uh, because we were able to get a paycheck protection program loan. And we, and we had a few other things that, that could help us. And, and for some people, they they left. They moved on to other other gigs, um, either because they were nervous about where travel was going to go, or uh, because they saw they saw other opportunities and this was the time. And so I say that it was a difficult decision, not because I would go back on the decision, but because there were people on our team that thought, well, we should do what others did in the industry, where they you know cut 40 percent of their staff and 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 shrunk down and. We could have done that, but we decided that we were going to play offense and we were going to take some sacrifice that was shared and we were going to um, bring in new revenue projects and other types of things to do it. I haven't had the time or the luxury to really analyze all the implications of that choice so that I can fully learn from it. But I think that the principle was the right one for 
who we are as a culture at our company and that, uh, you know, the people on the team matter more than anything. And at that time, there was just so much uncertainty and so much angst about what was going to happen next that I felt like uh, we as a leadership team decided that the, the right thing to do was to create the circumstances for the team to stay together. What would you say, uh, would you say that other people in the company would say that it was the right decision as well? I think the majority would look back on it and say it was the right decision, but there was a, a significant minority, you know, maybe 20% that, that thought that, um, that shared sacrifice was not necessarily the best move that, that we could have gotten there by, you know, uh, by reducing our headcount in certain areas. And I just felt like the positive side of the uncertainty was there too. Like this could have, could have bounced back really quickly. And we, we could have found ourselves in a spot where we were much better positioned than the rest of our competitors because we, we kept the team together. And at that time, you know, most of us were planning six months, nine months ahead. Now it's like, all right, it's pretty clear that 2021 is going to be, it's going to take us, we're going to need to get through 2021. So, all right, I'm glad we've set ourselves up to be able to do that. And um, I feel good about where we are. Gotcha. So then um, now Upside released a new product called Upside Financial. Um, how has that been going? Like, do you think it was the right decision or how did you even come up with uh, the idea to switch over to Upside Financial? We didn't really switch. We really added it to our product and mix. Uh, you know, we're product people and we saw a problem. I mean, fundamentally, it's uh, we saw a pain point we were experiencing ourselves. There was so much confusion about whether you could get forgiven or not. And the rules were changing all the time. So we did some research. We had um, we had. Uh, we had a partnership in the beginning um, when the when the loans were being um, uh, loan applications were being accepted, and we had worked on a one of the, one of the, a side project basically to deploy our team. And it became clear that while a lot of loans were being processed, the forgiveness was going to be a long tail opportunity. It was going to take a while for it to go through. And we thought, well, we could build a product that would help small businesses with their forgiveness. And so we had, we assembled a small team and said, let's, let's build something and let's test it. So August, September, October, we were testing with small businesses and getting, getting it, you know, organized and building the product. And then we decided to launch it in November. So um, the reason we saw it is that 5 million uh, businesses took out loans in the first PPP round and our estimate was that 4 million of them were going to need help. So it was from a business standpoint, a big market. Um, it is going well, but it is not, the confusion hasn't been reduced. So the new bill got passed and they made some changes to the prior and now there's a new thing. So we're, we're still helping people get unconfused, but it's, um, uh, you know, the jury's still out on, on how valuable, the product asset will be as a, as a product decision. We probably won't know for a year and that's gotcha. okay. That's a bet we made an investment we made. Gotcha. Gotcha. I think, I think upside financial will definitely help a lot of business owners through 2021 and even maybe 2022 um, depending on how long the problem lasts. Um, but so we have about four or five minutes left. Um, if you were to name 
three people you personally know that you'd like to hear their failures, who would it be and why? I feel like this is a setup. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm unprepared for this. So I know a lot of people and I know about some of their failures and challenges. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a bit tricky. So I'm going to punt. Okay. I'll give you, I will think more about it and I will give you an answer, but I don't have any, I don't have any that are top of mind on the personally. No, I think that there are stories of people that are, um, that are really challenging, but the, the tricky part about it is, is that it's the unknown failure stories that are most valuable, right? The things that you don't hear about. So we didn't talk much about it here. So an example, I had a partnership failure. I had a partner 20 years ago that we started a company together and it was a disaster. He was the wrong partner. We worked well together at the conceptual frame, but neither, you know, we didn't work well in the execution. And so we spun up all these ideas and opportunities and then we couldn't deliver against them. And so we were both frustrated by it. We had to fold the thing. That was, was a lesson this, learned. Was this pre price line or post price line? No, nope, post price line. Post price line. Yeah. Got it. So then if there was anybody in the world, even if you don't know them, who would it be that you would want to hear their failures? I think Elon Musk would be very interesting. Do they have to be dead or alive? Uh, they could be dead or alive. All right. Yeah. So um, I think that a lot has been, has been written, but I do think that there's still more, I think there's some dinner conversation with Steve Jobs that hasn't been revealed in the public. You know, Walter mm -hmm. Isaacson didn't cover all of it. So he yeah. would be an interesting one from a, a leadership standpoint. And then I think that, um, uh, gosh, what, what is her name? The, um, the, the founder of Thanos. Is it Thanos? Theranos? Yeah. Theranos. That's it. Um, I'm forgetting her name, but it would be very interesting to hear how she got in upside down as much as she did. Elizabeth Holmes. I just yes. Googled it for you. There you go. That would be really interesting. That would be definitely really interesting. I wonder what she's doing right now. I know she started something. She was raising some capital I saw and I don't remember what it is, but she'd be, she, that story has to be one that was, I think there's probably a lot about that story that's misunderstood. Not to say that there weren't problems, but that there's probably more to the story than we get to see. Gotcha. I think there's a lot of takes from different angles, but hearing it from her directly maybe would be yeah. really interesting. Got it. All right. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for joining us. How can other people find you or connect with you? I'm, I'm on LinkedIn at almost to an embarrassing level. So uh, it's just uh, in slash T Scott case. And um, that's also my Twitter handle and I'm on Instagram as well. And you can, um, you can email me at scott at upside.com. And that wraps up our conversation with Scott. If you didn't know, this podcast is part of the Lessons from Failures membership. Members are able to watch the interview live and submit questions. Get a shorter 10-minute highlight reel and also get a write-up of the main takeaways sent straight into your inbox. If you want to learn more about the Lessons from Failures membership, then go to LessonsFromFailures.co. That's LessonsFromFailures.co. Till next time.